Section 9, comprising chapters 25, 26, and 27 of Life and Adventures of Frank and Jesse James by J. A. Dacus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P. J. Landau. Chapter 25, After Gad's Hill, Pursuit of the Robbers, Trailed Through Southern Missouri to St. Clair County, Diversions in Bentonville, Arkansas, The Campaign Leads to a Tragedy. The bold act of brigandage at Gad's Hill aroused the whole country. The outlaws had become formidable. Missouri and Arkansas were alike interested, and the citizens of both states were ready to make personal sacrifices to aid in the capture of such daring brigands. But who were the robbers? A question not easy to answer with any assurance of correctness. Some said at once that it was the Jameses and the Youngers and their associates. George W. Shepard, one of Quantrell's most daring guerrillas in Missouri, and one of those who separated from him when he went to Kentucky, was an intimate friend of the Jameses in the old guerrilla times. After the war, Shepard emigrated to Kentucky and married at Chaplin, Nelson County, where he settled down. After Russellville, circumstances pointed to him as one of the persons implicated in the robbery. He was arrested, carried to Logan County, and tried. The proof was of such a character that he was found guilty of aiding and abetting the robbers, and was sentenced to the penitentiary for a term of three years. At the expiration of his sentence, he returned to Chaplin and learned that during his incarceration, his wife had obtained a divorce and married another man. Shepard had paid $600 on the house and lot which he found his ex-wife and husband occupying, but he left them there and took his departure from Kentucky. At the time of the Gadshill affair, he was somewhere in Missouri, but there is not a particle of evidence to connect him with the robbery. Bradley Collins was a noted desperado in those days who figured in Texas and the Indian Territory as one of the worst outlaws in the business. He also rode at times with the Jameses and the Youngers. John Chunk was another daring outlaw who infested Texas and the Indian Territory and often came into Missouri and cooperated with the brigands of that state. Sid Wallace, afterwards hanged at Clarksville, Arkansas, was another noted outlaw between the years 1866 and 1874. He, too, was a friend of the Jameses. Cal Carter, Jim Reed, John Wes Harden, Sam Bass, Bill Longley, Tom Taylor, and Jim Clark, all notorious in Texas and the nation, often joined the Missouri outlaws and hunted with them. Indeed, it appears that there was a regularly organized band of brigands ramifying through the states of Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, Arkansas, the Indian Territory, and Texas. This banditti was composed of the most desperate and daring men who had ever placed themselves beyond the pale of the law in this country. Whatever doubts might once have existed concerning the personality of the bandits of Gadshill, they have all vanished in the light of subsequent events. Jesse and Frank James, some of the Youngers and their associates, were undoubtedly the men who rode to Gadshill. The fellows seemed to have had a bit of classical humor in their composition in selecting a place so named as the scene of such an exploit. It seemed to have created a conviction in the minds of those in authority also that the Jameses were the leaders. Governor Woodson of Missouri offered a reward to the full extent of the law's provisions. Governor Baxter of Arkansas communicated to Governor Woodson 
his desire to aid in the capture of the outlaws, and also offered a reward. The express company offered a heavy reward for the capture of the bandits, and the United States authorities took an active interest in the movement set on foot to break up the formidable banditti. Stimulated by the prospect of gain, the detectives all over the country became active in the pursuit. The citizens, too, were on the move, and it seemed that the auguries all pointed to a speedy annihilation of this formidable gang which infested the West. Meanwhile, another outrage was committed almost on the line of retreat from Gad's Hill, which still further agitated the public mind. During the afternoon of the 11th of February, 1874, five men, splendidly mounted and well-armed, rode into the town of Bentonville, Benton County, Arkansas. Their entrance was quiet. They rode to the store of Craig and Son, dismounted and entered the store, made prisoners of the proprietors and clerks at the muzzle of pistols, and proceeded to rifle the cash box. Fortunately for the firm of Craig and Son, they had made a deposit that day, and the robbers only obtained about $150 in money. They helped themselves to about $100 worth of goods, warned the proprietors and clerks not to give the alarm until they had passed out of town, went out, mounted their horses, and rode away in the most nonchalant manner. In a saloon adjacent, there were more than 20 men who were uninformed as to what was taking place in the store of Messrs. Craig and Son until after the robbers had departed. Pursuit was made, but the bandits escaped. The weeks following the Gads Hill outrage were busy ones with the detectives. A carefully planned campaign against the marauders was at once instituted and prosecuted with great vigor. Alan Pinkerton, the American Vidoc, was employed by the express company to hunt the robbers down. The United States government ordered the Secret Service force into the field, and the police and constabulary forces of Missouri and Arkansas, under orders from the governors of their respective states, were acting in concert with the forces of detectives called into service by the general government and the express company. The brigands were successfully tracked through the wilds of southern Missouri, and their trail led into the hill country of St. Clair County and across Jackson County on beyond the Missouri River. No doubt was left upon the minds of the manhunters as to the personality of the Gads Hill robbers. The James boys and some of the youngers were certainly engaged in it. The youngers, at least John and Jim, had returned to Roscoe, St. Clair County, flush with cash. The detectives were on their tracks. To the force was added Ed B. Daniels, a courageous young man of Osceola, who was thoroughly acquainted with the country. The detective force in St. Clair County was under the direction of one of Allen Pinkerton's picked men, Captain W.J. Allen, whose real name was Lull. With him was a St. Louis fly cop, well known and distinguished for his shrewdness and daring, who for the time had assumed the name of Wright. Daniels was extremely serviceable as a guide. One morning, when near the residence of Theodoric Snuffer, a short distance from Roscoe, these three men were suddenly surprised by John and James Younger, who rode up behind them on the road. They were at Snuffer's house and saw the detectives pass, and started out with the avowed purpose of capturing them. Approaching the three men in the rear, they raised their double-barrel shotguns and with an oath commanded them to hold up their hands and drop their pistols. 
Taken thus at a disadvantage, the detectives complied and dropped their belts of pistols in the road. James Younger dismounted to secure them, while John remained on horseback with a double-barrel shotgun covering them. For a moment, he lowered his gun. That moment was fatal. Captain Lull drew a concealed Smith & Wesson revolver from his bosom and fired. The ball took effect in John Younger's neck, severing the left jugular vein. In the very agonies of death, as he fell from his horse to die, John Younger raised a pistol and fired, the ball taking effect in the left arm and side of Captain Lull. Two more shots were fired, probably by James Younger, before Allen, or rather Lull, fell. James Younger then commenced firing at Ed B. Daniels. That gentleman also had a concealed pistol, returned the fire, and inflicted a slight flesh wound on the person of James Younger. But his fate was sealed. A fatal bullet crashed through the left side of his neck, and Daniels fell, and soon afterward expired. This tragedy excited and alarmed the whole country. It was no longer possible for James Younger to remain in the country. He took the pistols which his dead brother John had worn and departed for the house of a friend in Boone County, Arkansas, where he was soon joined by Cole and Bob. Wright, who was riding a short distance in advance of Captain Lull and Ed Daniels, hearing the summons of the younger brothers, turned and at a glance saw the situation and putting spurs to his horse, dashed away. Although he was fired upon and pursued a short distance by James Younger, he managed to escape unharmed, aided as he was by a very fleet horse. The hunters for the Jameses met with no better luck. One of the darkest tragedies which ever disgraced the state of Missouri followed the efforts of the detectives to capture the shrewdest and most daring outlaws who have yet appeared in this country. There is an air of mystery about this terrible episode which makes it all the more thrilling. The full details of this crime are reserved for another chapter. Chapter 26. Witcher's Ride to Death. The Brave Detective Caught in a Trap. Jim Latch's Observations in Liberty. The Use He Made of His Knowledge. The Last Night Ride. Witcher Shot. The James boys were believed to have been the projectors and leaders of the Gadshill Enterprise. Soon after that event, they returned to Clay County. Traces of their trail through southern Missouri were soon discovered. The description given of two of the five travelers who took breakfast at Mrs. Cook's on Current River and lodged at Mr. Mason's house in Texas County answered well for Frank and Jesse James. The detectives caught at every clue. The James boys were at Gads Hill beyond a doubt, and so the brigand hunters passed into Clay County. Meanwhile, the James boys and other members of the gang were resting in the vicinity of Kearney in Clay County at the residence of Dr. Samuels. Among those known to have been there were Jim Cummings and Clell Miller, Jim Anderson, a brother of Bill Anderson of Centralia Notoriety, and Bradley Collins, a Texas desperado. The sheriff of Clay County thought Arthur McCoy was probably at that time with the Jameses. On the ninth day of March, Jesse James spent a portion of the day in Kearney. The gang had several horses shod a few days before at a country blacksmith shop in that vicinity. Wednesday, March 10, 1874, arrived at Liberty, the county seat of Clay County, Missouri, J.W. Witcher, from what place it mattered not to the citizens of Liberty. 
This man was in the very vigor of a matured manhood. He was just 26 years of age, lately married to an estimable and accomplished young lady, a resident of Iowa City. Witcher was intelligent, shrewd, and daring. He was selected by his chief, Alan Pinkerton, who was acknowledged as a consummate judge of human nature, as the fittest instrument to execute the most dangerous enterprise which he had ever yet undertaken. Immediately on arriving at Liberty, Witcher called at the Commercial Savings Bank to see Mr. Adkins, its president. To him he made known his errand into that section. At the same time, he deposited in the bank some money and papers. Mr. Adkins was not able to give Witcher all the information which he desired, and sent him to Colonel O.P. Moss, ex-sheriff of Clay County, for further information. When he opened his plans to Moss, that gentleman advised him not to go. He gave him a terrible account of the prowess of the desperadoes, told him of their shrewdness and of their merciless nature when excited by the presence of an enemy, and warned him that he need not hope to secure such wary men by stratagem. Colonel Moss was earnest in his efforts to dissuade Witcher from making the rash attempt. But it was of no avail. Witcher had received what he regarded as positive evidence that the Jameses were the leaders of the Gadshill bandits, and further, that they were now at home near Kearney. Stimulated by the hope of catching his game and securing the large rewards, Witcher, who seems to have been destitute of any sense of fear, made his arrangements to go that very evening to the James's place of retreat. Disguised in the garb of a farm laborer with an old carpet bag swung on a stick, Witcher took the evening train for Kearney, and there made inquiries for work on a farm. He did not tarry long at the station, but soon started out toward the Samuels' place. Poor Witcher! He little thought that his fate was already determined upon by those whose destiny he was seeking to determine. But so it was. There was a friend of the Jameses in Liberty that day, a fellow named Jim Latch, who had been expelled from Texas on account of his worthless qualities as a citizen and dangerous attributes as a criminal. Latch had met the James boys and had made a raid with them on one occasion down in Texas. He had been resting at their retreat for a few days, and was probably on a scout for them that day. At any rate, he was in liberty when Witcher arrived. He observed his movements, because Witcher was a stranger, saw him go to the bank and make a deposit, waited while he conferred with Mr. Adkins, and then tracked him to Colonel Moss's office. He came to the conclusion that Witcher was a detective, and when afterward he saw that the detective had changed his clothes, he was convinced that he was right. Latch hastened away to give a report of what he had heard and observed. When Witcher arrived at Kearney, the Jameses knew of it and suspected the truth concerning his mission. It was in the evening. Jim Anderson, Jesse James, and Bradley Collins were in waiting on the roadside about half a mile from the Samuels' residence. Soon after, Witcher came along. He was carrying a carpet sack. Jesse James came out of their concealment alone and met Witcher in the road. "'Good evening, sir,' said Witcher. "'Where in hell are you going?' responded the other. "'Well, it's a rude response, but I will not answer as rudely again. I'm seeking work. Can you tell me where I can get some work on a farm?' "'No, not much. You don't want any either, you damn thief. Old Pinkerton has already given you a job that will last you as long as you live, I reckon.' 
and Jesse laughed a cold, hard laugh that meant death. Of course, Witcher was helpless, for the other had him under cover of a pistol from the moment he came in sight. But Witcher was dauntless and wary, and without exhibiting the least trepidation, he said, Who do you take me to be? What have I to do with Pinkerton or his business? I'm a stranger in this country and want something to do. I don't see why you should keep that pistol pointed at me. I don't know you and have never done you any wrong. Oh, damn it, you're the kind of dog that sneaks up and bites, are you? You will carry in the James boys, will you? You're a nice sneaking cur, ain't you? Won't work, do you? What say you, my sneak, eh? The tantalizing manner of Jesse James did not disconcert the detective. He answered these taunts with perfect coolness. I don't understand you, sir. I am no cur and know nothing of the James boys. I addressed you politely, and you did not return the same. I said I wanted some employment, and you taunt me for it. I must bid you a good evening. With this, Witcher made a step forward. His progress was arrested by the harsh voice of Jesse James. You shall die if you move out of your tracks. Keep up your hands. Witcher realized by this time that his chance of escape was small, for he knew that Jesse James stood before him, and he had quickly made up his mind that he would sell his life dearly. He was cool, active, and expert with the pistol. His right hand was almost involuntarily seeking to grasp his weapon, but Jesse James evidently had him at a great disadvantage. Instantly realizing this, he changed his purpose. Well, this is a singular adventure, I declare. Now, why you should make such a mistake concerning me is more than I can imagine. You are surely making sport of me. I tell you, I know nothing of the persons of whom you speak, and why should you interrupt me? Let me go on, for I must find a place to stop tonight anyhow. Jesse James laughed outright. What, said he, were you doing at Liberty today? Why did you deposit money at the bank? What business did you have with Adkins and Moss? Where are the clothes you wore? Plotting to capture the James boys, eh? And Jesse laughed aloud. And Jim Anderson and Fox, another confederate of the boys, came from their concealment with pistols in hand. Poor Witcher saw this and for the first time he fully realized the helplessness of his position. Betrayed, he thought, almost said. Jesse James said in a cold, dry tone, Young man, we want to hear no more from you. We know you. Move but a finger, and you die now. Boys, he said, addressing Anderson and Fox, I don't think it's best to do the job here. It wouldn't take long, but for certain reasons, I don't think this is the place. Shall we cross the river tonight? The others answered they would, if it was his pleasure. All this time Witcher had stood still. Not a muscle moved, and not a single wave of pallor had covered his features. He knew what they meant by the job, and made up his mind to improve any incident, however slight, to have revenge on his murderers. But there were no favorable incidents for him. He had been tried and condemned in a court from which he could not appeal. At what time the sentence would be executed, he could not tell. "'Boys, relieve him of his burden and weapon,' said Jesse James. Quick as thought, Witcher's hand was thrust into the bosom of his coat. It was too late. Fox and Anderson sprang upon him, while Jesse James placed the muzzle of his pistol against his temple. The struggle was useless. He was compelled to yield, for just then Brad Collins and Jim Latch joined the others. The case of the detective was hopeless. In an instant they had disarmed him. He had brought only one Smith & Wesson pistol. 
Then the desperadoes felt his hands, and laughed at his pretensions as a farm laborer. Confident in the belief that he had been betrayed by one of the two gentlemen to whom he had applied at liberty, Witcher made up his mind that he would make no whining petition to the murderers. If he had known the exact state of the case, he would not have gone to Kearney, and if he had gone, he would have been better prepared to encounter the boys. But fate had ordained it otherwise, and another victim to the long, long catalogue of names which Jesse James had written in blood was the outcome of it all. Darkness had fallen upon the fair scenes of nature while these things were happening. The cool March winds whistled dismally through the yet naked forest trees. The stars came out and looked coldly from the Empyrean, but there was purity in their beams, and no blood marks on their twinkling discs. It was meet that the tragedy which was about to take place should be enacted in the hours of gloomy night, and at a time when all without was comfortless and dreary. Witcher was bound securely, and a gag was placed in his mouth that he might not call for aid or deliverance. The desperadoes placed him upon a horse in the still hours of the night and rode away. His legs were tied securely under the horse's belly, and his arms were pinioned with strong ropes. Jesse James, Bradley Collins, and Jim Anderson were the executioners. In silence himself, Witcher, during that long, lonely ride, heard the three discussing their bloody deeds with a thrill of horror, for they had told him what his fate was to be. About three o'clock on the morning of the 11th of March, the drowsy ferryman at Blue Mills on the Missouri River was roused to wakefulness by the shouts of men on the north side, who signified their desire to cross over. "'Be in a hurry,' cried the belated travelers. "'We are after horse thieves and must cross quick if we catch them. Thus appealed to, the ferryman crossed the river to the northeastern shore, where the horse-thief hunters awaited him. When they came down to the boat, they said to the ferryman, We have caught the thief, and if you want to keep your head on your shoulders, you had better put us across the river very quick. So persuaded, the ferryman obeyed. They were soon on the south side of the river. The ferryman observed that one of the men was bound and gagged. It was poor Witcher on his way to his execution. The very stars shone piteously through a veil of mist, and the wind sighed sadly as the strange group moved off on the Independence Road. But neither the helpless condition of their victim, nor the sad aspect of nature in the solemnity of the hours of darkness, could evoke a spark of pity in the seared hearts of Witcher's executioners. They rode away in the darkness. Just how they executed their purpose only the red-handed outlaws and the merciful God knows. The next morning, an early traveler on the road from Independence to Blue Mills, about halfway between the places, in a lonely spot, saw a ghastly corpse with a bullet hole through the forehead and another through the heart. It was all that remained of Witcher. Chapter 27. A Night Raid of Detectives. Attempt to Avenge Witcher's Death preparing a trap to catch Frank and Jesse at the Samuels' place. Fireballs and bombshells, a terrible scene. Death of a boy and wounding of Mrs. Samuels. After Witcher's melancholy fate, Alan Pinkerton had motives aside from those of gain for pursuing to the death the celebrated border bandits, Frank and Jesse James. In one year, three of the most courageous and trusted men in the employ of the distinguished detective 
had been sent out after the Missouri outlaws, and were carried back cold in death after conflicts with the desperadoes. Witcher and Lull and Daniels were asleep in gory beds, and yet Frank and Jesse James and their followers and allies were free as the winds that blow, to come and go as interest or caprice might dictate to them. While this condition of affairs continued, Pinkerton must have felt that his reputation as a skilled entrapper of criminals suffered. About the first of the year, 1875, the great detective commenced a campaign against the renowned brigands, which was meant to be finally effective. The most elaborate and careful preparations were made. Nothing was left undone which could in any way contribute to the success of the undertaking. The utmost secrecy was observed in every movement. Several circumstances seemed to favor the detectives. Many of the most respectable citizens of Clay County had grown weary of the presence in their midst of persons of the evil reputation of the Jameses, and entered with alacrity and zeal into the scheme inaugurated for the capture of the boys. Among those of the citizens most prominent in the movement, which had for its design the annihilation of the band of which Jesse James was supposed to be the chief leader, were several of the old neighbors and acquaintances of the James and Samuels families. With these citizens, Mr. William Pinkerton, who had gone from Chicago to Kansas City to direct the movements of the detective forces, opened communication. A system of cipher signals was adopted, and communications constantly passed between the different persons engaged in the undertaking. The citizens in the neighborhood of Kearney were watchful, and keenly observed every movement in the vicinity of the residence of Dr. Samuels, and daily transmitted the results to their chief, who had established temporary headquarters at Kansas City. It was known to some of the immediate neighbors of Dr. Samuels that Frank and Jesse James were at home. They had been seen occasionally at the little railway station of Kearney, which is three miles distant from the residence which had been and is still claimed as the home of the outlaws. Near neighbors, in casually passing, had seen them about the barnyards. All these things had been faithfully reported to the chief detective at Kansas City. At length, the opportune time for striking a decisive blow was deemed to have arrived. Dispatches in cipher were sent to Chicago for reinforcements, and specific orders touching their movements after their arrival near the objective point were given. The Kansas City Division of the Forces was held in readiness to cooperate with the force from the east. The citizens of Clay County, who had so zealously aided the detectives, received final instructions as to the part they were to take in the grand coup by which their county was to be forever relieved of the presence of the dangerous outlaws. Extraordinary precautions had been taken to maintain a profound secrecy as to the movements and purposes of the detectives. No strange men had been seen loitering about Kearney. Everything which could possibly be done to allay suspicion on the part of the outlaws had been done. But the Jameses had friends everywhere in western Missouri, keen, shrewd, vigilant men who noted everything and whose suspicions were aroused by the slightest circumstance. The very quiet which prevailed was ominous of approaching danger. Somehow, too, they had learned of the sending and receiving of cipher messages by a Clay County man at Liberty. This made them doubly watchful. The extensive preparations which had been made, 
and the necessity of imposing upon them of waiting for a suitable opportunity to strike had occupied much time and it was not until the night of the 25th of january that the detectives made the final attack jesse and frank had been seen near the samuels place that very evening and no doubt was entertained that they were at home the detective forces destined for the attack on what was facetiously termed castle james were divided into small squads and began to arrive in clay county on the afternoon of the twenty fourth from the east coming after night they were met by citizens of clay county and conducted to places of shelter in the most quiet and secret manner after nightfall on the evening of the twenty fifth a special train came up by kearney and on it came another detachment from kansas city these were met by citizens well acquainted and conducted to the place of rendezvous secretly as these movements had been conducted the ever vigilant jesse had his suspicions aroused by some trivial circumstance which would have escaped the attention of almost any other man convinced that some formidable movement was going on designed to consummate his destruction jesse james his brother and another member of the band rode away from the Samuels house after nightfall that very evening and at the hour when the detectives arrived at the vicinity of the place where they expected to capture them the james were riding in the cold well on their way to the house of a friend miles away the detectives had no intimation that their intended victims had taken the alarm and departed from the place they were assured that the outlaws had been seen in the vicinity of their home at a late hour in the afternoon and it was believed that they were there still the night was cold and dark it was late perhaps near midnight when the detective force arrived at the farmhouse there were nine men selected from pinkerton's force because of their shrewdness and courage and several citizens of the vicinity who like the detectives were fully armed the assailing forces took up their stations completely surrounding the house some balls of tow thoroughly saturated with kerosene oil and turpentine had been prepared and the detectives carried with them some formidable hand grenades to be used in the assault two of the assailants approached a window at the rear of the house the slight noise made in opening the shutters and raising the sash aroused a negro woman an old family servant who was sleeping in the apartment she at once set up a shout of alarm which speedily brought to the room mrs samuels her husband and several members of the family some of them young children just then a lighted ball of tow and oil was thrown into the room the place was instantly brilliantly illuminated the inmates of course having just been aroused from slumber were greatly agitated at this unexpected assault the situation was truly appalling another lighted ball was hurled into the room the younger members of the family cried out piteously as they fled aghast from the lurid flames that shot toward the ceiling mrs samuels quickly recovered her presence of mind and began to give directions and personally to exert herself in the work of subduing the flames she was permitted only a moment to engage in this employment there was a sudden crash as a great iron ball struck the door followed in an instant by a terrific explosion instantly the room was filled with a dense cloud of smoke through which the white flames of the fireballs gleamed with a lurid red hue as if tinged with blood there was a wail of agony from within that pandemonium of midnight horrors 
which might well have called emotion to a heart of stone. The piteous moans of childhood in dying throes were mingled with the deeper groans of suffering age and the shriller cries of terrified youth. The work of the assailants in that particular line of attack was complete. And yet the noted outlaws did not appear. It was at once concluded that they were not present, or they would have shown themselves under such circumstances. The attacking force did not wait to ascertain the result of the explosion of their terrible missile. They realized only that the game they sought had escaped them, and they retired from the place without caring to learn anything more about the consequences of their effort. They had failed, and that was all they felt interested in ascertaining. When the smoke had cleared away and the fires which had been kindled about the house were extinguished, the extent of the execution done by the explosion was fully revealed. The spectacle presented was awful beyond any power of our pen to describe. There, lying on the floor in a pool of blood poured out from his own young veins, was the mangled form of an eight-year-old son of Mrs. Samuels in the very throes of death. Mrs. Samuels' right arm hung helpless by her side, having been almost completely torn off above the elbow. Dr. Samuels was cut and bruised. The aged colored woman was wounded in several places. In fact, every member of the household was more or less injured. Blood was everywhere. Death was in the room, and pain and grief combined smote upon every soul in that stricken home. Whatever the crimes of the boys of ill-favored reputation, they offered no justification for this terrible assault in which innocent childhood was made the victim for the deeds of others. And the people of the state, without any exceptions, condemned the deed as wholly unjustifiable. The detectives made haste to leave the country, and the citizens who had assisted them returned to their homes and kept counsel with themselves. The dead boy was taken away, and in his little grave under the snow they left him lying, the sinless victim of sin, over whose untimely fate many hearts have swelled with emotions too big for utterance. End of section 9